Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alva. And I'm Stephen. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss the Chesham and Amersham by-election and you ask us, why hasn't Cressida Dick resigned? So we're recording on the day before the Chesham and Amersham by-election. Alva, you've been there this week reporting. Mm -hmm. Tell us what the atmosphere is like on the ground and what you think is likely to play out. It's so funny. I always feel nervous taking the temperature at a by-election place before we get the result, knowing that people will be reading the piece or listening to the verdict when they actually know. But I'm kind of guided by my experience in Hartlepool as well. And adjusting from that, where I still thought the Labour maybe would narrowly hold on to that. I think in Cheshire and Amersham, which is a safe Conservative seat at the moment, and it's the by-election there is being held because Cheryl Gillen, the long-standing MP there, passed away earlier this year. I think that the Lib Dems could win there. And if they don't win, it'll be a very narrow defeat for the Conservatives. It was amazing. It was very fun to sort of experience the blue wall right after being in the red wall and the the, the big juxtaposition between Hartlepool and Cheshman Amersham, which really couldn't be more different in terms of, I mean, just everything, how easy it is to get a latte with a pretentious kind of milk in Cheshire and Amersham compared with the centre of Hartlepool. How easy it is to get to from London. Just everything about it. Um, and it's immediately striking that these are the two places that the Conservatives are hoping to keep on to as part of their coalition because they just couldn't be more different. I didn't speak to a single certain Conservative voter the whole time I was there. And I know that, you know, if you only speak to 30 people... That's a tiny, ridiculous sample size. That isn't to mean that I think nobody's going to be voting Conservative, but I think that it was just evidence that the Conservative vote is very soft. So I spoke to lots of people who have always been Conservative voters in this safe Conservative seat who were saying that they were now wavering towards the Liberal Democrats. Sometimes they were saying that when I was with the Lib Dem team and other times that was when I was on my own. And so I think, you know, a, a solid proportion of them maybe will stick with the Conservatives and you would expect them to. But it's still very much evidence of all of these trends that we've been talking about, about Conservative decline in these previously quite safe Conservative seats that you know, because of demographic changes and also because of the recent electoral politics of the Conservatives and their position on Brexit are just seeing their support dwindle. I was actually very surprised how many people brought up Brexit, but that didn't stop them voting 
for the Conservatives last time. But they were saying that, you know, oh, well, you know, I voted Remain and so, you know, Brexit, but also HS2 or also, you know, I'm kind of sick of Boris, this kind of thing. So it was really people testifying to, to this thing of the fact that the realignment of British politics post-Brexit is still clearly happening a bit. And uh, that, I mean, it could still be that the Conservatives hold it by even a bit more than we're expecting. But I mean, their vote share will will definitely fall a lot. Yeah, so it, it, it's just, it's a very interesting by-election. It's also very local, like the, the issues are HS2 and planning. But um, it speaks to really the, the bigger picture, especially when you put it beside what we were seeing in Hartlepool. So what what is the Lib De- the local Lib Dem sort of main message there? The local Lib Dem message, they would like it to be we're against the these planning reforms that the conservatives are bringing in and this is really undemocratic and we're against that. In practice it is we're really against HS2 because the Greens have made this campaign about HS2 and people are still really, really angry about HS2 in that constituency. The HS2 line will like, run through there. So they they now are really amplifying the HS2 message, but I don't think that they ever intended for that to be the case. I think that they, they still kind of try to pivot onto planning a little bit when people ask. They have a quite firm line on HS2 now, but I, you can tell that that was not their plan going into <laughs> it. Especially because actually the strange thing about that election is that clearly... HS2 is a big issue for voters and the Greens have made it entirely about that and are taking votes from the Conservatives over that one issue. But there's no, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, there's no vote on HS2 in this Parliament. So, you know, it would send a strong message of opposition to it. But no matter who they elect, it's not actually going to move the dial particularly. Sort of so similarly, I went right at the beginning of the by-election, before there was a date, after she had died, um... And it was very clear to me and it really reminded me of, did you have to go to Whitney, Anoush, or is it just me who had that? that? I've been to Whitney, but to cover the the, the blight of potholes, which right. actually is not irrelevant yeah. to this current uh, <laughs> by-election. Um, yeah, so um, for the Whitney by-election, it was the same kind of feeling of, oh, whoa, the Tory vote is clearly very soft here. Obviously, they got very close in Whitney, with the difference that people in Whitney didn't really have any push reason. It was at that stage when Remainers were kind of upset about the vote, but they hadn't yet sort of radicalised against it. When the Lib Dems were the only, you know, when you'd still sort of talk to Lib Dem MPs and they're just like, why has Tim decided to do this? This isn't going to work. This is going to be a disaster for the party. Yeah, so it was in a, a very different set of political circumstances. Whereas here, High Speed 2 is clearly a huge issue. The Conservatives don't know, you know, I spoke to them yesterday and they said, well, they said what it's all going to come down to is we've definitely lost enough votes direct to the Liberal Democrats to be in danger. We've definitely lost some votes direct to the Greens. The question is, have the Greens taken enough votes from the Lib Dems as well that we'll hold on to it? And, so, and that's the thing that I think basically everyone knows that the Green Party will do well, mm. uh, the Lib Dems will get close uh, and the Conservative vote will fall. But the interesting thing is basically with high speed too, it's kind of like a it's it's like a bucket of something nasty, right? Whatever happens, some conservative MPs are gonna hold have to hold the bucket. So in some ways, right, voting for a Liberal Democrat to stop high speed two is actually a disastrous idea because if you are the minister in charge, you go, Oh well, you're not a conservative colleague I need to worry about. An extra dose of the bucket for you. I mean, whatever happens, the thing you will hear lots about on Friday including you know, several conservatives explicitly said to me, they said, 
whatever the result is, if the majority is under 5,000, a bunch of us are going to make statements of the effect of, this is what happens when you forget the South. This is what happens if you have radical ideas about planning. Mm. My majority is smaller than Cheryl's, and there's no way I'm risking this. And so it will create a big stink around the planning reforms. I mean, I think it was an act of daylight madness on Downing Street's perspective when they could have gone, okay, we're going to stick with our quite radical plans and we will make it easier for councils to borrow to build social housing. I don't see how Keir Starmer would have been able to say, actually, we've we've thought about it, lads, and we've decided that we would prefer to moderately inconvenience a Conservative government one year, two years into the Parliament rather than give count, Labour councils an easier time building social housing. So they could have got a lot of what they needed, not least because letting Labour councils build more social housing prevents Labour voters moving out into places like Chesham and Amersham um, where, did you have this hilarious thing where you'd occasionally bump into someone who strongly believes they still live in London and it's just like the auto sign that they're voting Labour or Green? <laughs> yeah. yeah it's, it's, like, it's just like, you're wrong, but it's so funny to me that it's just like, it's it, it's a better political tell than them wearing a rosette. It's just like, yeah, I, I come said someone, I'm down from London and they were just like, you're in London now. So, <laughs> Okay. It is weird, though. That, I mean, I mean, obviously, people in Cheshire and Amersham don't find it weird, but it is strange that you can get the tube there. Yeah, <laughs> Metroland. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a very nice tube journey, actually. A very beautiful mm. sort of vista, um, you know, between London and Chesham, which is no offense to this very kind lady who showed me a nice place and I could go and get a nice coffee. But she doesn't live in London; she's wrong. But mm. it, but it is like that's absolutely central to to everything that's happening there like the fact that people do feel like they basically live in London I mean I was back in London so quickly having been there I mean it is like greater London but you have you know nicer views and really cute pubs and nice little high street and a feeling of being in the countryside like that's in terms of the kinds of people living there really a big part of the the trend of it feels to me the subtext of the conservative debate on planning is basically someone in this electoral coalition has got to you know have got to have something unpleasant happen to them and we've decided it's people down south now the reason why i ultimately don't think that will stick is um one of those seats is the prime minister's um mm. yeah i was just going to talk yeah. about the similarity of his seat in some ways you know it's it's <laughs> you have to go further west on the tube than you usually would and there's yeah there's some parallels in terms of sort of people moving further out to those kind of areas in the outer london boroughs or you know the areas next to the outer london boroughs sort of convincing themselves they're still in the city but like you say enjoying bigger green spaces and sort of slightly lower house prices mm. yeah. yeah and there's the interesting flip side that in Ruslip and uh, Ru Ruslip? in Ruslip and Uxbridge, you will meet people who will say to you, "I don't live in London." And it's just like you can vote in the mayoral election. You're in a regularly numbered zone. You, yeah. you, you're, you're in Greater London, mate. Come to terms with it, <laughs> and that inevitably means they're voting Tory. And it's this sort of fascinating sort of the politics of place and kind of coming together in this weird way. But I think the thing that is going to be particularly significant about the boundary changes, which I think has mostly been not noticed by most journalists, although it has certainly been noticed by a lot of Conservative MPs, is it creates more Conservative-held marginal seats. And, and every part of that sentence is important. Yeah, so it also creates this weird set of incentives, right? So it creates a new worthing seat, but it also essentially creates an escape ladder. If you are, if you are Tim Loughton, right, you can go, ah, I could fight this Labour trending town. 
or I could I could exercise my claim to the slightly well the significantly safer conservative seat and has been created you know basically his seat's been kind of split at the next election there will be lots of seats that are conservative held but don't have an incumbent and are trending towards Labour and if the Labour Party I mean obviously at the moment it feels like saying if the Labour Party you know plays its cards right feels a bit like going you know (laughs) if I went to the gym every day I could get a six-pack right but you can see how with the right candidate recruitment selecting for these new seats early in the cycle the fact that a bunch of places where you go it's a notional majority of conservative majority of 4,000 but it's a majority of 4,000 because it has a bunch of people who voted Tory because they liked Peter Bottomley or they liked Tim Loughton or they liked Bim Afalami and and all of those people will I imagine go hmm I could fight this new conservative majority of 4,000 or this new conservative majority of 15,000 I wonder which it will be but all of those anxieties in the parliamentary party about, you know, down south that they have been forgotten and that the electoral strategy kind of presupposes them continuing to become more marginal will all just be turned up to 11 by this result. The big question, of course, is what happens if the Labour Party... Well, actually, there are a couple of scenarios in Batley and Spen which would be interesting. One is they lose Batley and Spen. The other is they win it, but George Galloway still does very well. And essentially what happens if the at the end of the sort of first three by-elections of the Johnson-Starmer era, the Labour Party's lesson is, oh, look how well we're doing with middle-class voters. Does that change any of their internal debate about how they might want to win? Um, Because it is certainly going to change the debate within the Conservative Party about what they are and aren't willing to lose and willing to to give up. Mm, I think that will be one of the interesting outcomes, depending on what happens in Batley and Spent, because it could sort of amplify anxieties in the Labour Party that perhaps haven't had as much airtime Mm. under Keir Starmer's leadership. So the Labour Muslim network has been doing this polling that suggests that um, the Labour Party is losing that majority of sort of popularity it has among Muslim voters that it sort of used to be able to take for granted and rely on. That's not something perhaps that's come into the debate of left behind voters or Labour's taken people for granted um, over the past few months, but it could become one of the louder narratives depending on what happens in the outcome of that by-election. It is just so interesting because it feels like these different by-elections are putting the different electoral strategies of all the parties under strain or certainly of the Conservatives and Labour. I think the Lib Dems and Greens are happy enough. I think it was very interesting having been in Hartlepool seeing the Conservative messaging working or not working there compared within Hartlepool it was different because they weren't the incumbents even though they are obviously the incumbent government and so they were able to sort of use this this line of of speaking to voters in Hartlepool talking about them being taken for granted and and the improvements that they would get in Chesham and Amersham it's just very interesting to see how meaningless that message is in not just a safe conservative seat but a seat surrounded by safe conservative seats you know under a conservative government this sort of oh we're working on the people's priorities thing like what like what does that mean for people in Chesham or Amersham and and I think I was speaking to someone on the conservative campaign yesterday and you know they were just really emphasizing that you know they're they're not taking any votes for granted but that it's hard having been in government for 11 years and that's just something you never hear from the conservatives normally because in Hartlepool you you could have easily have forgotten that they're in government at all or you know that they arrived in government 10 minutes ago and they're going to fix everything that went wrong over the past decade so I think that's really interesting 
And then the other thing, we touched on it briefly, is actually just quite how well the Greens are doing in Chesham and Amersham. I think they're hoping to get about 10% of the vote share, which would effectively be doubling their share last time. And I took great pleasure from just how nasty the Greens and Lib Dems are being about like avoid each other there. I'm just it's just incredibly funny. Like, <laughs> um, I mean, just like really. Um, I mean, I take it very seriously, but but I think just the way they both give perfect expression to the valid arguments on both sides about how you should approach an election under first past the post, the way the Greens think that the Lib Dems are sort of ruthless and nasty and that, you know, supposedly Lib Dems have been telling people on the doorsteps that the Greens actually want people to vote tactically for them. I don't wish the Greens are definitely not doing. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, they're, they're so annoyed about, you know, they, they see it as sort of fear-mongering and scare tactics and how, you know, and how it's not democratic and it's not fair and then the Lib Dems are a bit like when have the Greens ever taken a seat from a Conservative da, 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 we're the ones who can win it and you know sort of saying that the Little Party needs to wise up and they're just so mean about each other I find it very funny and I think that like both camps have really run the best campaigns possible like really really professionalized campaigns their messaging has been really good and you can see the greens are very very serious and the way they have tailored this message to you know a safe tory seat and are expecting to take votes directly off the conservatives is is very interesting and, and quite remarkable really i think the really interesting thing about this by-election is what was the central political achievement of the vince cable leadership well obviously the the biggest central achievement was not he's the most electorally successful leader in Liberal Democrat history with, you know, all those councils, the European elections, et cetera, et cetera. But from a policy perspective, it was him dragging the party mostly from its kind of, you know, pro-house building in the sheets, NIMBY in the streets, uh, you know, quite literally, right? The sheets, the manifesto, the streets, the actual <laughs> leaflets they put through people's doors saying, don't worry, there won't be any housing here. It's how completely that has just unraveled now he's not leader. And the fascinating thing is there were so many people in the last leadership election, you know, when I was, well, I don't know when I was going around the country, but obviously you weren't allowed to go around the country during the, but there were so many people I would speak to in that party who'd say, oh, you know, the reason why I'm voting for Ed, not Layla, is we can't go back to that sort of, the housing crisis is terrible, but don't you dare build a single house in Bista. And they said, yeah, we, we have to hold the line on that. <laughs> and, well, that has clearly not happened. Um the, the party has, has properly leaned back into, look, it's first past the post. There's a certain type of voter we're targeting. That type of voter needs a robust, nimby-ish message. And we're going to give it to them. Mm. And a lot of people are, you know, well, not leaving, but they're doing the whole, you know, I wouldn't vote Lib Dem and you shouldn't either. I'm not going down to campaign there. And I think the interesting thing is that one way or the other, right, whether they win the seat, narrowly fail to win it, come a, well, I, this is the thing, because whatever happens, right, the NIMBY-ish anti-Tory vote will be larger than the Tory vote, even if it's split between the Greens and the Lib Dems in a way that means the Conservatives hold the seat. The political argument for, you know, we can't go back to cableism will be strengthened, but that will be fiercely contested. And I realise, I'm not sure if the Lib Dems are going to be able to meet in per person, but I think the yeah the floor of the conference uh, when it does come back when housing policy is next debated is going to get pretty vicious as a result of the arguments about this by-election. 
It's interesting. That that was striking me too, because I spoke to Ed Davey and the candidate Sarah Green yesterday. And really the last time that I heard from Ed Davey at length was in his leadership acceptance speech and, and his, his whole campaign. So I had a good handle on what he had said that he was planning on doing. And I just thought it was so interesting in the context of a very local by-election, how much things that he said about what he wanted to do with his leadership are just not factors, um, or, they're, or they're just so different when they come into contact with a real electoral race. So, I mean, the main one is actually on Brexit. I think that it did seem that, not I mean, not just him in particular, but in general, the Lib Dems were at a little bit of a crossroads after 2019 where they were thinking... We've become so defined by our anti-Brexit stance and we now need to find exactly what we mean again, what we stand for. And of course, Ed Davey, when he took over as leader, made that speech saying that, you know, he would be going out listening to to people that, you know, whether you were for or against Brexit, you know, he was open to hearing from you and that the Lib Dems could be for you. In practice, the Lib Dems are, are so strongly associated with that Remain message that they are massively benefiting from it and they're benefiting from the same realignment that the Conservatives have done in different ways. And so in regard to that, I just wonder if actually they'll never win votes from people who voted for Brexit, that like that's a, that's a more permanent split and whatever Ed Davey said about listening to Brexiteers that their brand is so cemented and it's working for them. That was the main thing I noticed that that really, I mean, also the thing about, you know, caring and climate change, the two things that his leadership is meant to be prioritising. I mean, they, they're not really fe- featuring and like HS2. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know that it's 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 totally different when it when it becomes local it's just it's interesting the the theory versus the practice of of liberal democrat politics Mm. and you know what comes into it that i think is quite an interesting divide that is going to become more and more pertinent in elections particularly in those kind of seats is the difference between what politicians even in the same parties sometimes mean when they talk about green policies um i was speaking to someone who has worked on environmental policy making in government they were making the distinction between the conservative view or perhaps the southern conservative view of conserving so literally you know trying to make keep the countryside nice and that kind of thing whereas on the other side you have the 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 anti-climate change policies that are more about sort of almost more anti-capitalist in the way that they're in the way that they're carried out or to do with sort of building infrastructure that means that you have a sort of longer term reality that's better for the planet in these places, which is less, you know, palatable to the, for the people who live in them. And you can see that perhaps playing out in Ed Davies' dilemma there with HS2. And it's likely that that kind of that kind of tension will be worse probably for the Conservative Party when it comes down to it. OK, you want to conserve, you want to keep the land nice you might want to rewild some places but then it you know that that really collides with the reality for some people you know even farmers who want to keep their industries going you know how does that reconcile with rewilding or <laughs> protecting the, the the british countryside in the sense of it being um you know being about landscape and a place to enjoy and a place to conserve If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Hold up. 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask ask us. Us. So this is a question from Will in London. He asks, after being gold commander during the shooting of Jean-Charles de Menzies, after being Met Commissioner ultimately responsible for the policing of the Sarah Everard vigil, and after the detailed revelations in the Daniel Morgan report, why is Cressida Dick still in post? <laughs> I mean, for, I think we should start for people who aren't familiar with the last of that three, yeah. uh, which is the, the inquiry into the... Um, investigation into the 1987 killing of Daniel Morgan, a private investigator based in the Catford area, who it has long been alleged was killed either by or with the connivance of the police, and then the investigation of his killing was hampered by corruption in the police. For a variety of reasons, not least the fact that the initial investigation into his killing was inadequate, we are almost certainly never going to be able to say with confidence or definitively, you know, who, who killed uh, Daniel Morgan. So this story isn't solely a one of, you know, kind of 30-odd years of, of, of unremitting failure by the Met. One of the things we can say, because in 1997, as part of Operation, what I always want to call Operation Two Nigerias, Operation Two Bridges slash Operation Nigeria, uh, which was an investigation into allegations of corruption in the private investigator firm that the police officer who was originally tasked with investigating the murder of Daniel Morgan, who then, yeah, was, was then reassigned, but then ended up working for the, the private investigation firm uh, with the partner of, you know, as in the work partner of Daniel Morgan, who was himself a suspect in, in aforementioned inquiry. Um, they were later found guilty of conspiracy to pervert the course of justice after they plotted with two other men to plant Class A drugs on a woman in order to benefit a custody hearing or about children, because obviously it's hard to keep hold of your children if you go down for uh, intent to distribute. So we know that there was a problem in Catford Police Station at the time. We know that, that for various reasons, this man and his family did not receive justice. But the particularly alarming thing from the panel's inquiry about Cressida Dick is that, um, so this inquiry was set up in 2013. It was part of a personal project of Theresa May, the then Home Secretary, who obviously did have a deep interest in, you know, more effective, more accountable policing. And the idea was this inquiry would take the best part of a year. It took until December 2015 for the Metropolitan Police to have provided all of the initial evidence. It took significantly longer for them to provide HOMES, which is one of those acronyms, but it's basically the, for inter- into police force investigations, say like the Yorkshire Ripper or a missing persons case, it allows the, all the police forces to, to basically pool resources and pool knowledge. Having approved the panel's officers said, yeah, this is secure enough for private, you know, for confidential information, went, oh, no, actually, if you want homes set up in here, you know, you have to renovate, you know, extra doors, extra security. And you know, the assistant commissioner in charge of all of this was Cressida Dick. Uh, she is minuted as staying in the pa- in the panel's report, you know, in, in their account of the, you know, you know, this is an investigation, I'm paraphrasing it, but saying this is an investigation not into whether or not the initial investigation was any good or not, but why he was unable to get justice. Now, obviously, 
you cannot reach a view about the failure to find justice without reaching a view about the failure of the initial investigation and whether or not it was conducted properly. And so you have this deeply troubling attempt to delay what comes, comes across this sort of Kafkaesque set of, of objections and attempts to get in the way of the evidence, which is one of the reasons why it's taken so long. So that is, you know, the latest problem, uh, as well as the ones that our questioner sets out very well. I think part of the problem is that those three problems are across the two uh, remits of the Metropolitan Police, which it is the United Kingdom's counter-terrorism police force, and it is the police force for London. And that creates a situation where, although I think there's a big problem that people don't know who their police and crime commissioners are, and I think it works a lot better when they're in a Met, but it is pretty clear everywhere else who the elected person whose ultimate job it is. Whereas it's just like, well, who's, whose fault is it if Cresta's a dick makes a mistake? Who, or, yeah, who's, who's the person who should have to defend her? Is it Sadiq Khan or is it um, Pretty Patel? The answer in practice is both, which means the answer in practice is often neither. And I think that is a central part of, of the problem. Now, of course, there are other problems you can't legislate for in terms of organisational structures. Um, Sadiq Khan has, in my view, mystifyingly said today that he has full confidence in Cressida Dick, which, I mean, I, I would love to hear a detailed explanation from Sadiq Khan about why that is, because it seems wholly alien to me, but, I mean, fine. And the Home Secretary has been similarly lacking in, you know, in boldness or any engagement with the actual problems envisaged in this report. The the very fact that, you know, people are angry with both those politicians, but again, no one's quite sure who they should be pressuring more, I think is part of the problem. And it is, is also just, I think, highly undesirable to have the specialised, difficult and quite different challenges of counter-terror. Effective counter-terror is alien to transparency, right? It just, the two can't go... With the challenges of effective neighbourhood policing, which need to be you know, rooted in communities, transparent, open, etc., etc., putting those two together is always going to be a mistake. It's not the only mistake, and I imagine we'll get much more into this. Yeah, I think I think I think you're right to talk about the accountability of the Met Commissioner. I interviewed Ian Blair. The interview is going to be coming out at the end of this month, and he was telling me about how when he was commissioner, he was in an awkward position of having two governors because he had Labour Home Secretaries and a Conservative. London Mayor to answer to. And actually, um, Boris Johnson did make the unprecedented move of then sort of pushing him out of his position, which, which makes it easier for someone like Sadiq Khan to do the same with Cressida Dick now. So that makes his position even more mystifying. But yes, he was talking about how that is a big tension in the role and how it is difficult to know who you're supposed to answer to. But it also means that you then have this very awkward position of the two parties trying to take credit for the things that the Met, so for example on counterterrorism, which was obviously a huge part of his remit um, back in his tenure um, with the 7-7 seven, seven bombings and things like that, trying to take credit for, for what the Met were doing um, and trying to sort of elbow their way into the most um, beneficial photo opportunities and things like that, which means that the police become more and more of a political football and we've spoken about that on this podcast before about the way that police numbers have become you know nothing but a sort of campaign slogan and part of electioneering whereas there's very little imagination in terms of the way that politicians sort of speak about the police particularly the Met and you know you saw that in the mess of the Sarah Everard vigil the policing of that and the the politicians response to that as well I mean it was just it was it was quite an, an, an unseemly spectacle and Cressida Dick you know in that situation was able to sort of I think get, get away with poor optics at least again 
You're completely right about the lack of imagination among politicians or in the discussion around policing, which is quite unexpected, I think, given that there was this entire global movement off the back of George Floyd's death. You know, the central slogan was defund the police. And even though lots of people disagree with that as a policy strategy, you would think that, you know, one of the tenets of that, this idea that, you know, there are plenty of things that the police are quite ill-equipped to deal with. And maybe you would have a better mental health local response if you moved some of those responsibilities elsewhere. I'm just so struck that Keir Starmer is less vocally interested in it because he worked in the reform of the Northern Irish Police Service like really, really centrally. It was before he was head of public prosecutions. He was sort of a direct advisor on the human rights obligations of the new police force being set up in Northern Ireland, which is now, I think, people people always find this really funny and interesting that I always bring up the Northern Irish police. But I just think that the way, you know, we went from RUC, a sectarian organisation, to the PSNI, which has its problems, but just is, I mean, dare I say, like head and shoulders above the Met, despite, you know, an arguably even trickier context to be working in. The fact that Keir Starmer was so personally involved in that and interested in the complexities of policing across divided communities, you know, with lots of sensitivities, also, you know, layering on top of that counter-terror obligations the human rights responsibilities and like the broader community role of police you would think that he would be personally interested in having a more nuanced response which would be quite good for labor i think but instead it's just oh number go up number go down (laughs) (laughs) yeah i I think so we've we've had a number of of questions on this topic as we would expect we we've had several variants on you know should the Metropolitan Police be put in special measures, you know, something which would, would happen to a failing school. And the thing that is, I think, really striking about that question is there is the police equivalent of Ofsted. Sadly, it's not called Ofpol, but it exists. It produces regular reports into how various police forces are doing. And the thing I think is really striking is, is that you broadly have a situation where the same police forces are found to do well, the same police forces are found to do badly. You see this with best use of stop and search, right? where you have the same police forces yeah, across a variety of different policing situations, but yeah, some are very diverse here, some are using stop and search very well, which I'm defining as stops which then lead to an arrest, and ones where both they have loads of stops and don't lead to an arrest and a very disproportionate racial skew. And there is no pressure on police forces which are underperforming to get better. The flip side is there doesn't seem to be all that much interest, mostly, in police forces that are doing well and how they could uh, be learned from. And I think you really see this with the police and crime commissioners, right? In 2012, both parties actually got some quite interesting candidates who had experience in policing. You had a number of independents who had experience in policing who were not sort of, who you wouldn't necessarily have expected to become Labour or Conservative MPs. And now that, now that we've got to the end of their first two terms and you have a bunch of retirement, it's basically just like the kind of people who would run to be MEPs, you know, sub-tier career politicians who are, yeah, I... If, yeah, I, I like the European Parliament too, listeners, and I would prefer it if people didn't treat their party lists like this, but they did. And it's, With apologies to all former MEPs tuning ex- in. Except <laughs> the MEPs who listen to this podcast. Yeah. They were all from the highest draw, obviously. <laughs> but yeah, you kind of, there's this weird lack of interest in it. I think there's this real problem that the underlying assumption lots of politicians have is policing will always be a bit rubbish. You can't aspire to have it. You can, you can have excellent uh, schools, you can have excellent hospitals, but... With policing, 
just got to accept it's going to be mediocre. Now, I actually don't think that's true, but I do think that is basically the the centre ground in Westminster, as it were, is, look, what can you do? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think it, treating police policing as if it's separate from the public realm is quite a problem, isn't it? I mean, look at the standards that hospitals are held to as well as schools. It is really telling that even though politicians will treat this aspect of of the public realm or a public service as something that needs more funding or has been underfunded when it comes down to election time, but they won't treat it like that in terms of standards in between elections is really telling. And, you know, sometimes you only learn about the police forces who you mentioned, Stephen, who are showing best practice in things like stop and search in reports that are trying to highlight racial injustice in, in policing or in the criminal justice system. Like I remember reading the Lamy Review and learning, you know, whichever police service had had done the best to change the way it approaches stop and search why am i learning it in a in a review why aren't i learning it from some kind of i don't know you know from the inspectorate or from a central body that can actually hold these police forces to account and drive up their standards yeah although i think policing has uh, broadly improved in lots of ways since uh, the 70s and 80s i think one of the backward steps is the police chiefs aren't public figures in the same way for the most part yeah. Now, I have interviewed Andy Burnham, uh, also for a forthcoming issue of the, the New Statesman, and he, of course, has hired uh, Stephen Watson, being very vocal, yeah, very much Andy Burnham's appointment. And one of the reasons why he wanted him was because he'd been involved in South Yorkshire Police and he had actually seen it climb on various rankings. I don't want to do this whole like, really important issue of policing. It's actually an opportunity for us to talk about the flaws with Keir Starmer's strategy. But I do think it speaks to an interesting flaw with the sort of, oh, what we want to do is just not talk about sort of broadly defined cultural issues. And we just want to talk about the public services and the economy more broadly. The Conservatives in 2019 wanted to talk about Brexit. But they didn't go, that means we don't have a position on the public services. They basically went... We'll spend more on policing, we'll spend more on the NHS, we'll spend more on schools. Now that I've, you know, given you that thing, can I please talk about Brexit? And the problem with the Labour strategy is it's not precluded on the idea that you do the now I've taken care of that thing. It's just like our position on this is couldn't we talk about something else? I'm continually astonished that Keir Starmer doesn't seem to be that interested in something that he logically we know he must be quite interested in, Mm. which is getting better policing and i think you know not least because it does link into the broader stuff about the condition of the public realm we've actually got to know our local police quite well because we have in our block of flats uh this man who has quite acute care needs right he's just been completely failed by the sort of the consequences of all sorts of things being cut which means that what occasionally happens is the police end up being called they know that they can't do anything you know it's one of those things where like what happens is is essentially they make like a cup of tea they feel inadequate understandably because you know, they didn't get into policing to be social workers of last resort. And I do think then then if you had a situation where, and this is a failure of police and crime commissions as a structure, but it's specifically in this context failure of the progressive parties where they do hold them to do this a bit more, which is there's been a real failure to talk about, okay, here's what good policing looks like. Oh, have you noticed there's a problem that the police, I mean, this thing essentially like, you know, they have more police on the streets policy in practice, when you take it with that £17 billion of extra cuts and the ongoing cuts to local authorities, is basically, let's have some really poorly trained social workers who don't have any time to do their actual job of catching or solving crimes. And let's have no focus on how they on where people are doing a good job solving crimes, where they're doing a really bad job. Let's just go, yeah, as you say, number go up, number go down. You 
You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. We're produced by Chris Stone, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. You can find me on Twitter at Anoush underscore C. You can find me on Twitter at Pronounced Alva. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Stephen KB. Thanks so much for listening, and please leave us a review. Don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to submit a question to the You Ask Us section, you can email one in to podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.